today's scripture reading comes to us from Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 11, and Hebrews 4, verses 12 to 4 to 16. So if you have your Bible, you can look at the screen. Please follow with me and read along with me. Here's the word of the Lord. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from, dark, from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd our flock, your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who seek them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord and my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with a garment of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all generations. And Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, praise, and glory to be, to be God. Amen. Greetings to y'all there at KUC. I'm up in my deck here at Lake Nujiti. I'll just panorama out here. You see the nice view. It's a beautiful morning. And uh, out underneath this umbrella to keep the sun off me when it comes out shortly. Uh, my two grandkids are running around here. Uh, they're still being quiet for the time being, but who knows. Some of us here today were raised in a Western Christian culture that emphasizes the sin nature of humanity and how Christ came to this world to give his life to be an atonement for the sins we commit. Those of us who have worked in the very different cultural context of Japan, however, recognize that the theological formulations we grew up in the West with are not such a natural or comfortable fit. So, what I would like to do this morning is to have us think about how people in non-Western cultures, uh, such as Japan, receive God's gospel message. <clears throat> the huge variety of cultures around the world each have their own formulations of how to understand the human experience. But one way anthropologists have traditionally tried to give general categories to these cultural understandings is to categorize cultures into guilt cultures and shame cultures. Those categories are still helpful, even with all the cultural mixing going on today. But one should add that no culture is 100% one and 0% the other. <clears throat> Western cultures are in the guilt culture category, but that doesn't mean people in such cultures don't experience shame. It's just that guilt has traditionally been much more emphasized than shame. Although I was raised in a Western guilt culture context, I spent most of my life in Japan, which is considered a shame culture. And so I've seen firsthand how our Western theological formulations can become a barrier to the effective communication of the message of Christ in that context. If I try to communicate the message in terms of you are a sinner and you need to get you need to receive God's forgiveness. <clears throat> the typical Japanese will usually not perceive that as a message relevant to their situation. For one thing, the language itself has not developed in a way that clearly communicates such a concept. The word used to translate sin is sumi, but that same word 
can also be translated as crime. There's no clear distinction between the concepts of our sin before God and criminal activity. You can't, of course, explain the difference, but the concepts in themselves, namely sin and crime, are not differentiated by different words in the Japanese language. Thus, subconsciously, a typical Japanese will react to a sin and guilt-oriented message with indifference, because, after all, you know, I'm not a criminal. <clears throat> Likewise, when it comes to the concept of guilt, there is a similar disconnect linguistically. As I was thinking about how to translate guilt culture into Japanese, I realized that in addition to not distinguishing between sin and crime, the only words available to translate guilt are words that use this character tsumi. You know, they have the same character there. Same Chinese character, I should say. In fact, if you do a search for how to translate guilt culture, all you find is sumi no bunka, sin culture. In, in English, sin and guilt certainly do go together, but they're not the same thing. <clears throat> there are several other concepts that are crucial to the biblical message for which there are no unambiguous words in Japanese. Yurushi, for instance, can mean both forgiveness and permission, depending on the context. Thus, I suppose, sumi no yurushi could even be understood to mean permission for crimes instead of forgiveness for sin. I doubt it's very likely that someone would make that mistake, but it's possible. At any rate, the point is that the term is vague, and so this can lead to miscommunication. On top of that, the very concept of God itself becomes a linguistic. Uh, problem. The, the word kami means God, but the language itself does not have the equivalent of the English articles a uh, and the, and there is no equivalent to the capital and lowercase letters in the writing system either. There isn't even a clear distinction made between singular and plural, and so kami could mean God or gods with a lowercase g, or it could mean God with a capital G. You can see why talk of kami can become rather vague and why there is so there is often such a gap between the message someone is trying to communicate and the message that the hearer perceives. It can literally get lost in the translation. <clears throat> I think it was Lewis Carroll in Alice in Wonderland that coined the well-known phrase about words meaning what I want them to mean. On one level, that is true. And in our everyday, everyday lives, we often encounter semantical games where the meaning of words are being twisted and people are being manipulated. Or take an example from the international scene. How about the term Democratic People's Republic? The North Koreans give a far different meaning to those same words than what we normally use them to mean in Japan or America. So words do mean what we want them to mean, to us that is. But when it comes to communicating the gospel message, or any other message for that matter, where we try to persuade people to incorporate that message into their very lives, the very opposite is true. It means what they want it, or at least perceive it, to mean. Whenever we try to communicate a message through words, actions, body language, etc., 
The meaning that actually gets communicated is only what the receiver of that communication interprets it to mean. So, if we want to get our intended meaning over as accurately as possible, we need to understand the cultural and personal experience framework of our audience and how they are likely to perceive our message. Pause. Let me get a drink here. Now, obviously, this can get to be pretty complicated. It's really much easier to let words mean what we want them to mean and leave it at that. But then, if it is important to us to get our intended meaning across, that just won't do. To reiterate what I've been saying, the meanings we want to communicate to someone else can never be communicated directly, mind to mind. We could only put those meanings into words, tone of voice, gestures, etc., and hope that the other person can decode all of that and put the meaning we intend to that message. But the person receiving that message can only do that within the framework of his or her own culture and personal experience. When thought of in these terms, it's a wonder that God's message as interpreted by these fallible human instruments called missionaries has gotten across cultural barriers as well as it has. Even in Western culture, however, many misunderstand the biblical concept of sin. But traditionally at least, even if a person has not accepted Christ, subconsciously there is still the concept of doing something wrong that is wrong because it goes against some sort of absolute standards. Even if a callous conscience allows a person to do sinful things, there are still the underlying cultural norms that predispose such a person to understand when, confronted with, you are a sinner, you must get right with God, repent, and receive God's forgiveness. Now, obviously, we can't take for granted nearly as much as we used to that even in Western cultures, that approach will communicate what is intended. What happens, however, when this same approach is used to in presenting the gospel to someone from a shame-oriented culture such as Japan? The concept of absolute standards revealed to humanity by God the Creator did not play any role in traditional Japanese culture. Instead, morality and ethics have been governed by their effect upon society or the family or other significant groups. <clears throat> this difference between shame and guilt orientations is not that great when one is talking about crimes such as murder and robbery, since these are clearly harmful to society. But the differences become much greater when the more, uh, with a more subtle sense. So long as one's actions do not bring shame to one's group, then the psychological sanctions that would inhibit sinful actions are rather weak. From early childhood, children are disciplined with the phrase, you'll be laughed at. In other words, your acting like that will produce shame. In a group-oriented culture, this fear of shame provides for strong social control. But the tendency is towards a situational ethic type of thing, where 
I don't need to worry about it so much as long as nobody knows, as long as I do not bring shame to the family, etc. To give you a concrete example of how the fear of shame is used as a societal control mechanism, when you get or renew a driver's license in Japan, you have to watch this dramatic presentation of an inattentive driver causing a bad accident and how the shame it brings on the whole family forces them to move to a new location in order to try to escape the shame. <clears throat> Suffice it to say that no matter how one categorizes Japanese culture with respect to shame and guilt, when it comes to communicating the gospel in traditional Western concepts, such as all human beings being guilty as they stand before a holy God, and therefore needing a savior to take away their sin so that they can be made acceptable to God. When presented like that, adequate communication is rarely achieved. When there is no concept of a last judgment for, before an almighty transcendent holy God for their sins, uh, then an evangelistic approach based on that, no matter how biblical and true it is, will bear little fruit since the cultural soil has not been prepared to receive and nourish that kind of gospel seed. Thinking of it in, in the terms of the analogy of seed and soil, which Jesus often used in his parables, the two possible approaches to overcoming this problem are to either find a more culturally acceptable kind of gospel seed, or to work on the soil so that it can be more readily it can more readily accept the traditional seed. The latter approach has been by far the more common of the two, and certainly it has not been without its successes. Many forms of indirect evangelism, such as through education and hospitals, have acted as a sort of fertilizer to make the native soil more receptive to the Western-style seed. While this can be a good thing, uh, the key to reaching people in such cultures lies more with the other approach. One Japanese seminary professor answered the question of how he became a Christian was, first I had to learn to think like a Westerner. Typically, however, that is not a realistic option for most people. <clears throat> sin and the forgiveness of sin are central to the Christian message. But as I mentioned earlier, in the Japanese language there is no distinction made between the concepts of sin and crime. When it comes to Japan, Christian mission has had to limp along with no accurate translation for sin that gives it anywhere near its biblical meaning. Thus, for the typical Japanese with little or no biblical understanding, using this aspect of the gospel as one's basic evangelistic approach will produce little fruit. Well, in thinking of how these linguistic and cultural barriers can be overcome, I've experimented with using an approach involving the concept of shame and the covering of shame to present these same gospel truths. Shame is a very important aspect of Japanese culture, and it is also an important word in the Bible, as it appears in various forms in more than 200 verses. It is interesting to note that the bulk of these references occur in the Old Testament, where the Hebrew culture represented is a very group-oriented culture similar to Japanese culture in this and several other aspects. One is struck by the, by the fact that the Old Testament laws are filled with references to ritual uncleanness and defilement 
and how they can be cleansed. The shame of one was the shame of the entire group and was dealt with corporately. The, the rules of Leviticus detail the various rituals of cleansing and offerings that would cover the transgression or ritual defilement involved. Thus, sin itself was seen more in terms of defilement and uncleanness to be removed by purification than has usually been recognized in the West. These all point to a shame orientation rather than a guilt orientation. And thus shame is a far more important concept in the Bible than most Western readers have been aware of. A look at a few references will give us an idea of how the Bible deals with the concept of shame. Traditionally, Western theology has talked a great deal about the original sin that taints all of humankind. It is interesting to note, however, that the term sin does not even appear in the Genesis narrative until chapter 4, when Cain kills Abel. The fall of man narrative in chapter 3 does not use this word, but instead describes humankind's disobedience of God in terms of the symbols of shame and nakedness. It is, of course, quite natural to talk of this event in terms of the guilt it caused because of the great sin of trying to become like God, that is, to become a God unto himself. Even so, the fall narrative makes very good sense in terms of its original concepts of disobedience, shame, and nakedness before God. Thus, instead of original sin, might we not just as well formulate the effect of Adam and Eve's disobedience in terms of original shame? After all, it is rather difficult to think of a newborn infant as, quote, sinful, since, to use the biblical symbolism, that child has no filthy rags of his or her own deeds yet. All of us, however, are born into this world totally naked, exposed before all, and that symbolism naturally points to humanity's original shame. Hebrews 4.13 points to this when it says, There is nothing that can be hid from God. Everything in all creation is exposed naked and lies open before his eyes. And it is to him that we must all give an account of ourselves. Returning to the symbolism of Adam and Eve's physical nakedness, we can see that it also refers to their spiritual condition before God. Before their disobedience, they were in perfect harmony with their Creator and had nothing to hide. Afterwards, however, their feelings of shame led them to try to cover up with the only thing available to them, fig leaves. This is very symbolic of all humanity on the spiritual level as we try to cover up our shame before God with our own efforts. It's just like trying to make clothes out of fig leaves. They fall apart at the first move. As the narrative continues, however, it is God who takes the first step to solve this dilemma. He does not banish Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden naked, but instead clothes them with garments of sin. This is only the first step in God's great plan to solve this problem of shame and restore harmony again to his creation. It does not say so specifically in the text, but it is obvious that animals had to be sacrificed in order to provide a symbolic means of covering Adam and Eve's shame. From that time on, then, 
the ritual sacrifice of animals became a central part of the worship of God. With the establishment of the Levitical law during the period of the, of the Exodus, God instituted through Moses an intricate sacrificial system with various festivals and numerous kinds of sacrifices for a variety of situations. The purposes of these sacrifices were multifold as they served as object lessons through which God could communicate truths about himself to his newly formed people. Some also served as reminders of God's mighty acts in the past. They all, however, in some sense, pointed back to that original sacrifice in the Garden of Eden, where God took the first step to cover humankind's shame and restore harmony between himself and his creation. They also pointed ahead to that final sacrifice on that hill overlooking another garden, the one with a freshly hewn tomb, where God would complete what was necessary to give us eternal garments to cover our shame, our spiritual nakedness before him. Isaiah 61.10 uses the symbolism of being covered by the robe of righteousness to symbolize salvation. I will greatly rejoice in in the Lord, my soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. This verse is only one of many that use this symbolism of being covered by the robe of righteousness to describe salvation. On the other hand, then, our righteousness in the presence of God becomes nothing but filthy rags. Since uh, sin is uh, often described in this very way. In Zechariah 3, chapters, uh, verses 3 and 4, it says, Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to Joshua he said, Behold, I have taken your sin away from you, and I will clothe you with rich apparel. Here the filthy garments symbolize sin which God removes and replaces with his robe of righteousness. Shame is similar to this, except that instead of filthy rags, it, the, sim, the symbolism involved there is a nakedness beneath those rags. In this sense, we can see that it is the more fundamental of the two. It cannot be removed, but only covered. As we stand before God, if we say we have no sin, and in this symbolism take off our filthy rags, what is left is the shame of our nakedness. Either way, the only covering that will do the job is the robe of righteousness Christ offers us, offers us at faith. In Revelation 3, Christ counsels us to receive from him white garments to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen. Those garments are Christ's robe of righteousness, which we receive by faith. To go along with the with this theme of shame and the covering of shame, in contrast to sin and the forgiveness of sin, there are numerous other biblical themes and concepts that can be expressed in terms of themes found in Japanese culture, and indeed in any culture. The Bible is filled with such a variety of symbolisms and stories that serve as vehicles for God's message to humankind that it speaks to every culture when those seeking to communicate its message do so within the cultural framework of those they're trying to reach. 
I've used these concepts whenever I've had the opportunity to present the gospel message in Japanese sermons, etc. And numerous Japanese Christians have commented to me about how much more at home they feel with such a formulation, because it makes it sound so Japanese. One lady said to me that she only wished her late father had heard the gospel presented that way. He had been a seeker, but had stumbled, among other things, over the concept of original sin. Apparently, his interpretation of the message he had heard made it sound so utterly unreasonable to him that he ended up just, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I gather that he thought the doctrine of original sin taught something like, you know, newborn infants are inherently evil and born criminals or, or something like that. Thus, as has been demonstrated repeatedly in the history of the Church, Christians can have a biblically grounded theology and still not be able to communicate that understanding to others in such a way as they are drawn closer to God. We must first understand what false preconceptions other people already have about God, Christian commitment, etc., and communicate our message in a way that doesn't just reinforce those false preconceptions. And of course, since our actions and lifestyle are an integral part of the message we communicate to others, that must also be in harmony with our words. In closing, I want us to focus back on how much richer our worship of God is when we acknowledge and celebrate the rich diversity of cultures God has created around the world. As Paul said in his discourse to the Athenians, from one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And then there is that glorious description of the vision John saw concerning the closing of this present age, when God creates the new heavens and the new earth. After this I looked, and. There before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus.